where we put music's most troubled productions to tape. This is Jack Durback. Uh, my name is Spencer Faust. Today's album is quite the infamous one. It is called Chinese Democracy. It is a legendary beast of a record by one of the most well-known hard rock bands of all time, I would say, Guns N' Roses. Spencer, tell me a little bit about your background with Guns N' Roses. Are you a big fan of them? You love Welcome to the Jungle? Um, let's see. I definitely learned how to play the riff Sweet Child of Mine on my old Yamaha electric guitar when I was a kid. I thought you were about to say um, keyboard, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, what didn't I learn it on? I learned how to play the riff... But only that on, like, every instrument. <laughs> on every single instrument. You bought some bongos, you bought a gong, and learned how to, like... Exactly. And it's like, if you had 20 of me, I could I could perform that six seconds of the song perfectly. Don't worry about it. <laughs> My background with Guns N' Roses is very limited. Mostly because, uh, I just, I'm, number one, I'm not a, not a slashaholic, as it were. What? I don't, I don't worship at his altar. And uh, number two, I especially hate Axl Rose as a human being and a voice. Oh my god, I hate him. He is the most... He, you shouldn't put a crow in a man's body and then give him the reins of one of the, the most legendary rock bands of the past like, 40 years. Just why? Why stop it? I find it interesting how he's the person you focus on in terms of just absolutely soiling the band because he is going to be an important figure in this discussion. I bet. I'm not really a huge fan either. I haven't really listened to them to Guns N' Roses that much since, like, maybe high school. I will say their first album is pretty much the one everyone thinks of, and I think a lot of their merit rides solely off of that. I can't argue it's a classic, but it's kind of a classic in the same way as Back in Black by ACDC, where you're either going to just <laughs> love it because it's exactly what you think it's going to be, or you're not going to love it because it's exactly what you expect a typical rock record to sound like. If I could take rock as a whole and grab all of the most basic, normal tropes that you could expect, sex, drugs, rock and roll, and put it in an album, it was going to be Appetite for Destruction, like it or not. <laughs> oh, I thought you, I thought you were going to say Sgt. Pepper. That's weird. <laughs> well, I mean, I will say this. Rock music has its moments where the lyrics aren't necessarily that deep. In fact, they can even border on misogynistic. And I'm not usually somebody who's super sensitive to that. I understand when I listen to a song by Led Zeppelin and they're singing about how a woman needs to juice their lemon. I'm like, okay, it was a different time. <laughs> People thought they really have a song where they compare their dicks to citrus. That's a thing. And they're considered one of the best bands of all time. That's just something you have to accept. Before we get too far... I want to make it clear. I do have I do have one other big Guns N' Roses memory in my in my background, and that is when they played. I think it was like the VMAs or something, and this was after Axel got pretty fat, and they opened their set with Welcome <laughs> you mean to when the they Jungle. Got oh yeah, yeah. When they well the when they when they got, got when they got thicker, um, I, they opened up with Welcome to the Jungle, and Axel came sprinting out on stage. He was running around. He was hopping around. He was getting the crowd excited. And then uh, it came time for the lyrics, and he was so out of breath <laughs> that he's <laughs> Welcome to the... <sighs> we got fun and games! You don't understand, Spencer. That's true heavy metal. Heavy metal. So tell me more about this album. Where do we start? Well, it's kind of hard to pinpoint where to start without just talking about the band's history in general. First of all, we talked about Appetite for Destruction. It's still seen as a classic. It was seen as rock being dangerous again when it came out. A lot of 80s rock music was way more towards, like, glam metal, like Twisted Sister, Poison, mm -hmm. Rat. When Guns N' Roses came around, they had a very punk attitude. They were just singing about, like we said, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. They didn't care about anything else. They were just going to sing what they wanted. Or should I say, Axl Rose was going to sing what he wanted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Appetite for Destruction was seen as this sort of counter-movement, but they never really could find a good footing after it. Their follow-up was called GNR Lies, and it was almost all acoustic, and if it wasn't, it was cover songs. And the band retroactively said, no, 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 that's not our second album. That was just like an EP. There was a particular song on there that I think sort of culminates everything to come later. Axl Rose, the genius that he is, had a song on there called One in a Million. Spencer, do you know anything about this song? I, it sounds familiar. 
I think if I heard it, I would probably I would probably this know it. This song but is what based I would on consider, the name. No, I don't think I know it. Um, let's just say he used a lot of derogatory terms towards everyone. Oh, uh, African Americans, okay. uh, homosexuals. He uh-huh. basically trashed everyone because he said he hated everyone. He just didn't give a fuck. He was just gonna. If you've never heard the song, look up the lyrics. One of the particular words he used was a lovely N-word. Uh, yeah, okay. And in 1989, he was wondering why everyone was mad at him for using that word. He said, hey, they get to use it. Why can't I? The classic excuse. And the band would go on record saying, we thought this was a terrible idea, but we couldn't convince him not to make this song. He really wanted to say this. And he would throw a fit whenever we're like, maybe this isn't a good thing to uh, do. That's sort of Guns N' Roses in a nutshell. It's Axl Rose doing what he wants, making the band very uncomfortable, and he just gets away with it. Can I make it clear I'm reading these lyrics and having a hard time juggling my uh, will to host this show and, I don't know, not snap my phone in half? They're terrible. He has finally said that, yeah, it was a mistake writing these things. It was a mistake not because he didn't mean them, but because he's he's just mad that nobody else liked it. Because Axl Rose is a fucking garbage pail that came to life. He would often say, well, you know that John Lennon song where he says, woman is the N-word of the world. Hey, he got to do it and nobody was mad at him. Not realizing that John Lennon was kind of making a point and his song was just saying how much he hates the gays. Yep. That's pretty much all it is. There's no message. He's just saying how much he hates people. He would go on to say he was pro-heterosexual. He's not against anything with the gays. He just doesn't want them to get near him. He's like, I listen to Queen. I listen to Elton John. They're fine with me as long as they stay far away. Oh, he verbally digs himself a hole every time he opens his mouth. Right. I feel like he's gotten a little bit softer, and I'm not talking about his... Uh, his paunch, we can say it. His considerable paunch. But yeah, he would just—he just was really committed to this song, and the rest of the band was like, "This seems like a bad idea." And that is Guns N' Roses in a nutshell. Let's go forward a little bit. Around the time they're touring for Use Your Illusion One and Two, these were big albums that they sold individually. So you had to buy Part One and Two separately. They made a boatload of money off of it, but there was a lot of trouble during the touring for this. They were all very high on drugs. This is another little part of the band. All of their music was completely riddled with drug addiction. They ended up kicking out their original drummer, Steve Adler, and replacing him with Matt Sorum because he was so high on heroin, he literally couldn't play drums. You must have been really, really high if Guns N' Roses kicks you out of your band. No, for real. Well, here's the thing. If you're on crack, you can make an album. Like, you can you can make three albums that day if you want. <laughs> if you're on heroin, you're not making any music today, man. And you're the drummer. You, you are the most flailing member of the band, and heroin does not correspond with it. So really... I get it. You know what? There's there's room for Mr. Brownstone. There is no room for heroin. <laughs> uh, their guitarist, Izzy Stradlin, not Slash, the other guy, he was kind of saddened by this. They had to get a new drummer, so they get Matt Sorum to replace Steven Adler, but it wasn't ever really the same for them. Stradlin said that his sense of swing was the push and pull that gave the songs their feel, and <laughs> this almost seems kind of like a backhanded like, insult to Matt, who replaced Steven. He's just like, yeah, all of her songs kind of sound like they suck now without him. There's no subtlety to it at all. It's a pretty blatant criticism of Matt, but, like, <laughs> again, your drummer was on heroin. <laughs> I know this feels like we're just giving some history to the band, but this is incredibly important information because it's almost like we're seeing the beginning of a little snowball, and by the end of this podcast, it's going to be a fucking avalanche. <laughs> So, July 2nd, 1991, at a little place called St. Louis, the band was performing pretty close to us. We weren't born yet, but, you know, it hits home. I've been there. I lived there. We've been there. I've been there. The infamous Axl Rose meltdown happened. Oh, there's, hang on, hang on, there's just one? This is a big one. There's a lot of, there's a lot of mini ones that happen after this that are pretty similar, but this is the first time where it really, like, nosedive Guns N' Roses' reputation. Because they were known as just, like, this super dangerous rock and roll band, but they were still fun to go listen to. Oh, give it to me. Give it to me. I want to hear it. 
Axl Rose saw that somebody was filming their show. They explicitly said no cameras, no filming. That's normal. I can understand that. Uh, this person was documenting the tour. I don't know if they were actually hired or if they were just a fan who were like really dedicated just following the band. Yeah. But Axl Rose caught wind of this. He saw it and he was telling the dude to turn off his camera, but he wasn't. So Axl Rose... Seeing that the security wasn't really doing anything because, you know, who gives a shit, really? Uh, Axel right. Rose took to himself to jump into the audience to beat the shit out of this guy. Oh, okay. Um... <laughs> Axel Rose was pulled away from this guy after beating him up. And because he was so pissed off, he said, well, thanks to the lame-ass security, I'm going home. And he just fucking left. Like, they were on tour, though, right? Like, did they keep doing the tour? Was the tour canceled, or...? Well, they still did shows, but... I would like to ask you what you think of the typical Guns N' Roses fan. Do you think they're going to take this lightly? Do you think they're just going to be like, oh, okay, we'll just get a refund, whatever, it's fine. I kind of feel like you got to worship at the altar of, of Axl Rose's cult personality. But, like, at the same time, I also think that uh, these are the people that, like, are currently listening to classic rock stations. And I don't feel like they're the type to cotton to, to being denied their service. I don't think they're going to be happy. No, they weren't very happy. They rioted, and a lot of people got hurt. Like, dozens of people were severely injured because Axl Rose just said, fuck it, I'm out, and their fans got pissed off and started beating each other up. It just became like a giant fist fight. I mean, the blame is half and half on, on, on both parties. There, <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> it's almost like one douchebag left, so all the other ones got pissed off. It's like, I hate Axel just as much as the next guy, but that kind of lies in the uh, fucking ape brain of that crowd. <laughs> well, this was kind of seen as a criminal offense, and Axel Rose was supposed to be arrested, but they left to Europe to finish off their tour. So for over a year, the police were waiting in the U.S. with their arms crossed, <laughs> waiting for them to show back up, and as soon as Axel Rose came back, they just slapped the cuffs on him. Wh how, did, how was he... Was it for inciting a riot? Because it's not like it he walked was. off stage and said, also, everyone hit each other. The, the, the thing was, they were trying to say that he incited the riots by just completely walking away and assaulting a guy. But the mm. judge later said it wasn't his fault that he is listened to by a bunch of douchebags. So he was not actually charged with anything. He was let go. The system works. Whenever Axl Rose throws a fit, his audiences would always riot. This happens throughout the entirety of Guns N' Roses. These are just little chips that are beginning to show in the band before they have even really cemented themselves as rock legends, really. Like, you have your, mm -hmm. their first album, which is awesome. I'll give it that. You could love it, you could hate it, but you can't deny just how revolutionary it was. And Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, a little bloated, but, you know, they sold a ton of copies. Fun fact, in Use Your Illusion's liner notes, he wrote, Fuck You, St. Louis. That's just a little little fun thing. Uh, he still holds a little bit of a grudge for us, I guess. That Well, really, that should be printed on, like, a lot of albums. I mean, we kind of deserve it. <laughs> We're not a great city. Rhythm guitarist Izzy Stradlin eventually quit in November 7th, 1991, because this exact same incident almost happened again in Germany while they were avoiding the cops waiting in the U.S. Axl Rose once again was pissed off at the audience and tried to leave, and Izzy Stradlin was just like, Dude, you're nuts. We don't know how you're trying to manage this band. This is just stupid. I want out. Get me out of here. Another factor was he was sober. He saw it as really sad trying to make music with a bunch of people who were just pretty much wasting their money and time doing drugs. He, he saw it as depressing, really. No matter where you stand on either side of, of straight edge or not, like, I think we can universally agree there's nothing worse than being the sober guy in a crowd of inebriated people. Considering just how much the band seemed to be cemented in that sort of drug mentality, it's hard to just kind of stay around in that sort of environment. So Stradlin, unfortunately, left the band. I know he's not Slash. He's not the most famous guitarist of Guns N' Roses. But, mm -hmm. you know, you listen to that and then you listen to their later stuff. And you, you can tell there was a little bit of change for the worse when he left. He was replaced by Gilby Clark. And he helped the band re-record the guitar parts on their, at the time, upcoming studio album, The Spaghetti Incident, which was a cover album. <laughs> you, you have a question about the name, the Spaghetti Incident? No, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna put my hand down. I don't want to know. Uh, <laughs> you know what? It's fine. I don't really understand it either. 
I, oh, thank God. <laughs> I think one of the old band members was suing the band for rights or whatever, and the judge brought up the spaghetti incident and requested that it be explained. And I think it had something to do with one of them storing drugs in a fridge next to some spaghetti, and they thought that was really funny to call drugs spaghetti. I think that's literally it. I'm not entirely sure about that. I had no high hopes that Axel could be a funny person, so don't worry. Oh, like, I'm you, not dis- you don't think he has humor? Well, I, Don't worry, I'm not disappointed. <laughs> I hate to break it to you, but he does have some humor. He thought it would be really funny and really counterculture to cover a Charles Manson song on the spaghetti incident. <sighs> Continue. I have nothing. <laughs> well, he would constantly wear Charles Manson shirts... And he purposely left off the song on the liner notes because he wanted it to be a fun surprise. He didn't think people were going to take it well until they heard it and they thought it'd be kind of, you know, a tongue-in-cheek, funny, like, oh, you know, a lot of people hate me, Axl Rose. A lot of people also hate Charles Manson. Let me play a song of his. That, that was his mentality. He's like, I'm a criminal. Nobody likes me. So I'm going to cover a song by a serial killer. And of course, the entire band said, this is stupid. We shouldn't do this. Seriously, no, let's not put this on the record. They did. And of course, a lot of people were heavily disturbed by it. Yeah. No, you know what? Like, regardless of uh, the the talent Charlie had, don't think don't think his works belong in the public sphere anymore. <laughs> a controversial statement. I mean, you can separate art from artists, but there's a certain point where it's just like, really? <laughs> there's a certain point where you can't. <laughs> there's a certain... And it's when you murder a lot of people in California. <laughs> and, you know, this is weird because a lot of people were offended by this. And these are the same people that really like the song where they talk about making women bleed. It's like, I guess there was a line eventually drawn by the band's fans. I guess. <laughs> this was the beginning of where their antics and, you know, punk attitude just to be sort of against the grain was starting to piss people off more so than be entertaining. And actually, we are finally getting to the point where they're going to try to make an album to follow the Spaghetti Incident. This is 1994 where we start. Mm -hmm. I would like to reference Loveless, our first episode with My Bloody Valentine. That album took a couple years to make. This album can be seen as the ultra-mega- blockbuster version of Loveless in a way. So just sort of prepare yourself. We're going to be going throughout a lot of time here. Okay. All right. I'm going to I'm going to prepare a reasonable window of time in my head. Let's see if we can meet it. You know what? I'm interested. Spencer, how long do you think it's going to take for this album to be released? Just off the top um, of your head. I'm going to say 3 years. 3 years. Okay. Yeah. Let's see how this turns out because that's that's about 1 year more than Loveless. So exactly. this is a bigger band. They have more things to do, maybe an extra year. I think that's sure. a pretty fair guess. Pretty fair guess. So we start in 1994. Between 1994 and 1996, they start recording. Interestingly enough, there's not a lot known about this period of time where they were recording. Slash says that a lot of the music was written by Axl Rose. He was really finding what he wanted the band to sing about. Later on in 2008, Axl Rose would say, actually... I was banned from writing songs by the rest of the band. How many slurs were in this album? There's your answer on who's right and who's wrong. <laughs> Between this time, the band started making their own solo albums. Slash released one in 1994 called It's Five O'Clock Somewhere. It did not feature Axl Rose. The reason for this is because this was actually going to be a Guns N' Roses album. And this was, I'm assuming, the material that Slash was working on that Axl Rose said he wasn't involved in. So when Axl heard it, he said, you know what? No, this isn't good enough for Guns N' Roses. I don't want any part of it. So Slash just did it himself. He's like, okay, fuck you then. So what was supposedly the follow-up to the Spaghetti Incident, Axl Rose just completely said, nope, it doesn't involve me. It's out. Eventually... In 1994, the bands had something that they actually were considering a Guns N' Roses album. However, it was going to be not as hardcore as their first, and it wasn't going to be as experimental as Use Your Illusion. So it was pretty much going to be a boring record that was neither super fun to listen to or very experimental. And eventually they're just like, you know what? This isn't good enough. We're going to scrap this, too. So this is... They've become the very thing they swore to defeat. Exactly. They were becoming a lame rock band. So they just said, screw it. We're not going to release this. This is the second album that they technically recorded that they said, you know what? This isn't good enough. Their replacement for Izzy, Gilby Clark, would release his own 1994 solo album, the same time as Slash, called Pawn Shop Guitars. And it featured, I think, every single Guns N' Roses member on it. So in everything but name... 
this was a Guns N' Roses record. I don't know if this was the record that they said, you know what, this actually isn't good enough. Let's disguise it under your name, Gilby. It'll be fine. The fact that it is in everything but name a Guns N' Roses record is very much a flip statement for what's going to come later in this podcast. <laughs> and I, lo- I look forward to that moment. Around this time, Axl Rose said that his girlfriend said, you should stop writing music. Everyone seems to be getting pissed off by you. Slash was telling him, dude, you need to stop. Their bassist was saying, no, dude. Everyone was stopping him from recording, and it was starting to piss him off. So he decided to do a little bit of a power move. (laughs) The band ended up recording a cover of Sympathy for the Devil by Rolling Stones. They would end up recording the song with one of Axl Rose's childhood friends, who was named Paul Huge Tobias. This man's name was literally Huge. (laughs) Hold hold on a second. That's not... That's not a name. Huge was a nickname, but I want to call this guy Huge throughout the rest of this podcast. (laughs) Axl Rose said, hey guys, this is my buddy Huge. Uh, He's going to be playing guitar instead of Gilby Clark. And the band's like, what what do you mean? We all like Gilby. Can we invite him so he could play the guitar instead of this guy? He's like, no, this is our new guitarist. They record the song. It's on a couple of movies. And Gilby Clark learns about it after the fact. He's like, wait, you guys didn't call me up to do this song. You got this random asshole to do this. Axl Rose was like, yep, see you later, buddy. This is just extra toxic because Gilby Clark's favorite band is the Rolling Stones. He performed a Rolling Stones song when he was auditioning for the band. They would play Dead Flowers a lot on stage. And he was just completely dumbfounded. He's like, I love that song. Why didn't I get to play this? And Axl Rose was like, oh, it's because you're not in the band anymore. That's such a slap in the face. And for what? For this buddy named Huge. I think this was literally him doing a power play where he's like, if the band is going to ban me from writing songs, I'm going to bring in my own chess piece. This guy's going to back me up. And the rest of the band hated this Huge fella. Especially... <laughs> I know, it's, <laughs> and that's why I want to call him Huge from How now How do you on. say these things out loud, Jack? <laughs> huge is a wonderful nickname. In fact, I would like to be called Jack Huge Sturback from now on, if you don't mind. Yeah, I'm working on it. I'm, I'm... <laughs> The most prolific songwriter other than Axl Rose of Guns N' Roses was, of course, Slash. And he especially hated Huge just showing up and essentially kicking Gilby Clark out of the way. Huge was constantly sort of against everything the band was doing if Axl Rose said so. So Slash said, you know what? Either you're keeping me or you're keeping Huge. It seemed that Axl Rose didn't give a shit. He's like, you know what? I like Huge. He's saying I just can't picture Huge as anything but this, like, giant... It looks like a baby is six feet tall. <laughs> and he's and he's got overalls on, but no shirt. I don't. I haven't he, seen a picture of him, but that's exactly what he looks like. That's my headcanon of Huge. Their bassist, Duff McKagan, was very, very concerned about all this because it seemed that Axl Rose was just completely taken over. Mm-hmm. He was possessed by Huge. Everybody liked Gilby Clark. They didn't understand why Axl Rose kicked him out of the band and brought in Huge. So Slash would end up leaving. He said he just wanted to write some good riffs, play guitar, have fun. And Axl Rose was quickly turning the band into something else, and he just wanted no part of it. Matt Sorum, their replacement drummer, was also fired in April of 1997 because he just hated Huge as well. He hated Paul Tobias. And he was like, you know what? This sucks. And Axl Rose was like, fine, fuck you, get out of here. Paul Huge Tobias would be known as Guns N' Roses' very own Yoko Ono, where because he was so involved in the band, everyone else hated him. And Axl Rose was like, fine, if you don't like him, get out of the band. So then they did. The last remaining member to finally leave would be McKagan. He would eventually become a father. And he ended up leaving, not because Paul Huge Tobias was just this toxic guy that Axl Rose brought on just essentially to be a bodyguard. But he was also seeing that the band was not making anything. Remember, I said that the drummer was fired in 1997. So we are long past the three years that you said that the album was going to take. We're already three years in. You might have noticed Uh. that I skipped a lot of time because the band literally would do nothing but go to shows, quit because Axl Rose was being a little bitch, and then he would fire somebody. Three years go by. They say they're making albums and just nothing ever happens. It's almost like they were just saying they were to keep people happy. So McKagan was like, dude, I'm a dad now. We literally haven't recorded anything in like five years, four or five years. I'm out. So we officially have nobody left but Axl Rose in 1997. 
Well, hold up. Wait, when did Huge leave? That's kind of the thing. I don't want to bog down this podcast in a lot of names, a lot of dates. From Axl Rose kicking everybody out by 1997 on... He would constantly work on this album he called Chinese Democracy. Throughout the Mm -hmm. recording of this album, the band would go through dozens, and I don't think I'm exaggerating here, dozens of different musicians. There are some famous names. There are people who worked with bands like Nine Inch Nails. There are people who worked for The Killing Joke. There's Buckethead. But there's a lot of names attached to the album that would eventually come. But there are so many fucking people that would work with Axl Rose that ended up hating him or he ended up hating them that he would just fire them. I don't have a date for when Tobias left. I don't have a date when Huge eventually left the picture, but he eventually was just gone. You know the things they use to juggle bingo balls? Uh-huh, yeah. It's like that with people. Axel Rose would just reach in, and he'd be like, okay, you know what, all of you are fired. I'm going to get some new people. Like, I wish I could be more specific, but I don't want this to be a four-hour-long podcast. No, absolutely. I was writing names down, and at one point, I just said, fuck it. Because it's a phone book after some point. It is. I do have some special names that I'll go with, because there are some interesting names attached to it. The very first time where Chinese democracy was actually being made was 1997, when the band was completely dissipated except for Axl Rose. Let's go ahead and bring back your three-year rule. It's 1997. Let's say they'll release the album by 2000, okay? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. 2000 rolls around, it doesn't ever get released. It was going to be oh, called... That's, that's hard to believe. One of the main things that this album had was electronic influences. I want to say the band, but Axl Rose hired electronic down-tempo producer Moby to produce a Guns N' Roses record. Pretty much the last person you would expect to produce a rock record. So as soon as this news goes out, people say, oh no. Axl Rose is getting really excited. He's saying, I'm working with all these computers... I'm making these electronic sounds. I'm learning the technology. It's not just going to be Guns N' Roses with electronic elements. I'm going to make everything fit. He gets this band together, including a guy who used to tour with Nine Inch Nails, and says the album's going to be released in 1999. They even re-recorded the entirety of their first album, Appetite for Destruction, possibly to release with it. He's getting really excited. He says it's going to be called Chinese Democracy, because that's funny, isn't it? You know, China, democracy, those things don't match. It's funny. It's exactly. It's fun juxtaposition. <laughs> he thinks that it's a funny thing. He's like, and I'm also mixing electronic with hard rock. Ain't I a wacko? Ain't that crazy? That's so punk, Axel. He would eventually have a couple of the songs he worked on leaked. And when everybody heard them, they were less than pleased. Now, when Guns N' Roses fans aren't happy, <laughs> there's widespread violence. <laughs> yeah, so- and there, there was tons of murders afterwards. <laughs> And they were inextricably linked to these leaks. The first song of theirs that was released to be in this new style was a song called Oh My God, which I'm assuming was the same reaction that a lot of people had when they heard it. (laughs) It was released for the movie End of Days, which was when Arnold Schwarzenegger would fight the devil. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. It's truly trash. It sounds badass, Jack. I don't know what you're talking about. It sounded very much like Axl Rose heard a Marilyn Manson song and said, yeah, I want to do that. My fans are going to like me being Marilyn Manson. This song would eventually be dropped off of Chinese Democracy because it was terrible. I was going to say, I don't recognize the track (laughs) and I just listened to the album, so. During an interview, Axl Rose said, this is one of the many songs that I wanted to make in the 90s that the rest of the old band just didn't want me to do. They said, there's no potential. This song sucks. Slash would eventually say in an interview, yeah, I heard it. I'm glad I wasn't a part of it. Despite working with Moby and despite wanting an electronic direction, he would eventually work with Queen guitarist Brian May and Queen's producer, Roy Thomas Baker, in 2000. So this is our three-year mark for Chinese democracy. And when Roy Baker listened to the album, and when Brian May listened to the album, couple million have been spent on it. They told Axl Rose, you need to redo this. A whole thing. This is literally the worst thing we've ever heard. Please do something else. (laughs) We know it's going to be expensive, but this is so trash. Eventually they would be fired, but that's beside the point. Axl Rose starts over in 2000, remaking Chinese Democracy because it was so terrible that the people who were working with him were like, we cannot be attached to this. It's been how many years? They started in 1994 for a follow-up just beginning, Mm. isn't it? So it's Mm -hmm. already been six years. We're 100% past what I guessed. So 2000, let's do your three-year rule again. He'll have it by 2003, right? You think that's going to happen? Or do you think this is going to be delayed? Oh, no. I know when this comes out. It's (laughs) next to the album. (laughs) 
So, oh, guys, let's, let's not spoil the so fun. Long. No, it's fine. If you know when it gets released, all I'll say is this. There's a lot I'm going to start skimming over because you're going to see the same thing of Axl Rose working with people, firing them, and ending up realizing he needs to start over. It, it, it's just going back to what we said earlier. You can't be bothered to keep track of it at some point because it eventually becomes the same thing. Axl Rose firing people and then delaying right. it. So I don't want to make this too repetitive. Exactly. At one point in, I think, 2002, maybe 2001, Axl Rose let Rolling Stone listen to the album while it was being worked on. And they compared it to Led Zeppelin's Physical Graffiti if it was remixed by Beck and Trent Reznor. So very, very much like a mix of classic rock, but industrialized. Axl Rose would end up saying to Rolling Stone, yeah, this is what I'm working on. I have a lot more on the way, though. In fact, I have so much music that I'm going to make this a three-part album. About the same year he shows it to Rolling Stone, he said, you know what? It's not going to be industrial anymore. That was a bad idea. I changed my mind again. Why can't he have these epiphanies when he's dropping shit that is just racially toxic? <laughs> Luckily, it seems that he's starting to go away from those stupid pig-headed ideas. And he's just saying, yeah, I'm learning computers. And he just says that over and over. I'm learning computers. <laughs> Basically, that's all that he seems to be doing at this point. I have a little fun note. In 2002, the band goes on a North American tour. The first one since 1993. The first one since he essentially jettisoned the entirety of the band. And this tour was supposed to be for Chinese democracy. But it wasn't quite out yet. So he's like, you know what? We'll go on tour. We'll perform. And then we'll release the album in 2002-2003. They had another one of those situations where Axl Rose fucked the fans over. This time, however, it wasn't because he left because he was angry. But he had apparently some flight troubles. Like, he was trying to go on a plane, but the plane was having some malfunction or something. A riot ensued, a lot of people got hurt again, so it's the same old, same old. He would later on go on to say that there are reasons that he has not spoken more about those cancelled shows, because it's not quite legal, and he hasn't quite figured out all the legal resolutions behind it, and he could not talk about it because it could jeopardize the future of Guns N' Roses. I don't know what the fuck happened, but I just thought that was the most distressing thing I've ever read. What does that mean? Did he murder somebody? Did he kill the really? plane and like, did he push it in the ocean? What happened? I, really, what's the mystery, Axel? Unveil it for me. Eventually, he would perform in 2012 at the cities he canceled on, specifically Philadelphia and Vancouver, and he would say that he was not innocent. I don't know for what, but I, I don't know. I thought that was a fun little detail to mention because it really freaked me out. Oh, God damn. Uh, this apparently weighed heavily on him and the rest of the band. He felt really bad about whatever happened, so the band took a break. Uh, some of the songs from Chinese Democracy would be leaked in 2004, and Buckethead, who at the time was the guitarist, would leave the band because... <laughs> This is what he said. We ha I have been with this band for a couple of years. They can't seem to finish an album or even a tour. I'm out. <laughs> we literally can't finish anything. This is so stupid. I'm out. At this point, it's really, really joining Guns N' Roses is just deciding whether or not you want to be friends with the members and get high with them on a day-to-day -day basis. If not, <laughs> feel free to leave. You're not going to make any money off your endeavors. It's so shocking to hear just how inept they seem to be at finishing anything yeah it's ridiculous really. well it can't be easy when you're constantly firing everyone that comes near you we haven't really talked anything about their record label geffen records mostly because they weren't as small of a label as loveless's label which eventually just completely eroded away into nothing due to kevin shields but the guy in charge of geffen records was like guys you literally haven't made an album in 10 years we're making a greatest hits because we need to make some kind of money off of you. All of the band was like, no, all the old members were like, no, we don't want you to make a greatest hits album. We're not that kind of band. And they try to fight against it, but they eventually dropped those charges because they literally have not given the label any money. They have been nothing but a currency black hole. Really, really, they're a canyon for currency. In 2004, they released this greatest hits album and the rest of the band's like, nah, fuck it, it's stupid. Don't listen to it, we're not that kind of band. But people ate it up. It sold 6 million copies as of 2018. 
That's a lot of, of that's a lot of copies. It's the easiest way to make money as a classic rock band is do another greatest hits collection. I almost feel bad for the record label because this is a band that everyone still in 2004 want to hear more of. Mm -hmm. But they're not making anything. What could you do but make a greatest hits record in this case? This wasn't yeah. like, let's just get all the singles and put it on an album. It's an easy playlist we could sell as a CD. They had no other option at this point. They needed to make some kind of money because Axl Rose kept saying, yeah, I have three albums on the way, but they would not see a ghost of a trace of it. In 2005, Geffen Records said, you know what, Axl? You have cost us millions of dollars. You are no longer getting any money from us until you release this album. Have fun finishing it with your own money. At the time they say this in 2005, the New York Times reports that this album cost $13 million. I need a Loveless comparison real quick. Uh, At this point in time is already the most expensive record ever made in the history of the world. Uh, <laughs> no album has ever crossed this amount of money. Maybe if you adjust some for inflation, maybe they're close, but this is not the final amount. By the end of this podcast, it would cost more than this. So just don't even bother looking anything else up. This is the most expensive album ever made. It's hard for me to wrap my head around that Guns N' Roses holds the, the record for the most expensive album ever made. It's almost like, why? This is a band exactly. that's known for pure rock and roll, hard rock. At the most, they hired people to do some string arrangements and play some pianos. They indulged a little bit, but $13 million worth Whoa, that's more expensive than any other album made. That has to be... I haven't looked up any modern hip-hop records, any pop records. I can't mm -hmm. imagine a Katy Perry album cost this much. And this no, is a Guns really. N' Roses record. And, like, it's got to be cost-of-living expenses, right? Like, like in Loveless's case, when they were... When, when Kevin Shields was like, oh, this is... Most of that money was cheeseburgers when you get down to it. It was hotel fees and cheeseburgers. That's gotta be the case, right? I know there's been a full-on militia of guitarists thus far, but like, right. there's no way the money's actually going into making the album. I don't know. I cannot believe that is the case. We haven't really talked about the actual sound of the album yet. No. But when you listen to it, whether or not you like what you're hearing... You can't argue that it doesn't sound like a lot of money was dropped on it. It's polished, but like there comes a point where a polished record isn't $13 million. Like, I honestly believe Axl Rose was dicking around with computers and trying to make an album. I don't think that he wasn't making stuff. There are interviews with people who were close to him that did say he had made all of those songs that he said he did. He would just never release them. Mm -hmm. I do think it's mostly that and the fact that he hired so many different people just to fire them and start over. I think we're looking at 13 million without realizing there were supposed to be like four or five albums made out of that money that he just never released. Yeah, okay. It's weird and it's way too fucking much. But I could kind of understand it. This is also over a long stretch of time, you know? Like, when you think back to Loveless, it costs a lot of money for the record label over the course of only three years. So it was expensive, but you heard it in the final product. This $13 million plus is spread all across a bunch of recordings we will probably never hear. So, like, it, it's just one of those things where you're looking at money that just completely disappeared. Into mm -hmm. Axl Rose's computers, which he really liked playing with. He was learning how to do computers, Jack. We finally reach where the album is actually done. So many people have gone through it, Axl Rose finally has something he's gonna release. It starts to be mixed February 23rd, 2007. It has been 13 years? Yep, 13 years since they started trying to record a follow-up to their cover album that a lot of people would rather forget. You know what, Jack? Those fans aren't the only people that wish they could forget the spaghetti incident. <laughs> By the time Christmas rolled around of 2007 and it was not done being mixed because Axl Rose didn't like it. And this is on their money. This is on his own this dime. This is on now. his own dime, yes. By the time Christmas of 2007 rolls around, you start to hear Axl Rose saying, people involved in the project saying, yeah, it's done. It's up to the record label now. It, it has been done by Christmas of 2007. Apparently, Axl Rose is talking with Geffen Records, and apparently they get into a little bit of an argument. Geffen Records was basically telling Axl Rose we need to do something huge with the marketing because this thing has cost so much money we literally could not make our money back. So we need to try our best to at least market this thing like it is a huge thing because we're never going to make the money back. We're just going to have to make this, shove this down people's throats. And apparently Axl Rose did not like that. <laughs> apparently he had a different idea of how he wanted to market it. God knows what his ideas were. 
He was going to stash little pieces of plywood in six cities across the country <laughs> with a URL written across them. And if you merged all six together, you would get an address. And if you wrote to that P.O. box... What the fuck? Devin Records was like, nobody buys CDs anymore. They used to when you started working on this 13, 14 <laughs> years ago. Not anymore. We lost millions of dollars. And at this point, over half of the album was leaked. So they were like, most people have heard the album. They know what's going to happen. A lot of people don't seem to really like it. <laughs> we need to do something huge. I think that a little bit of label trickery happened at March of 26, 2008, but I can't prove this. But around the same time where they were trying to figure out how to market it, a little-known soda brand steps in. Spencer, have you heard of Dr. Pepper? Oh, hang on, hang on. Is that... That's the off-brain of Mr. Pib, right? <laughs> I think I've heard of them. I think I've seen that at a Lion's Choice once. I don't know if this has anything to do with the record label trying to figure out a big marketing scheme, but Dr. Pepper announces on March 26, 2008 that they really don't think the album's going to be released this year. So they say that if Chinese democracy comes out in the year of 2008, they will give all of America a free can of Dr. Pepper. Except for Slash and Buckethead. <laughs> That's, no, <laughs> not you two. Except for them. They were trying to be cute about it. Uh, Axel Rose would say it was a cute campaign, and he's like, you know what? I'll split my Dr. Pepper with Buckethead because he helped with the album. He's a good pal. So, of course, everybody is excited to get a free Dr. Pepper, more so oh than actually God. listening to the album. <laughs> what a fucking shock when the album actually releases November 23rd of 2008, and Dr. Pepper has to shill out all of their Dr. Peppers. The thing is, the album was a huge success. They released it on MySpace, and it was streamed over 3 million times, and Dr. Pepper was overwhelmed by so many people going to their website to get the free coupon that their servers crashed, and they had so much traffic, I shit you not, that literally nobody could turn in the coupon and get a free Dr. Pepper. So it was all a ruse, and nobody got a free soda with their fucking rock and roll record. Nobody got their free Dr. Pepper? Everyone was pissed. No! <laughs> this is the greatest injustice of our time! Now, Axl Rose said that it was really no big deal that Dr. Pepper kind of shit their pants and didn't, really, like, didn't give everyone a Dr. Pepper. He's like, oh, well, it was a cute thing. However, his lawyer, Alan Gutman wrote probably the most hilarious thing I've ever read in the history of music. Alan Gutman said of the Dr. Pepper scandal, the redemption scheme your company clumsily implemented for this offer was an unmitigated disaster which defrauded consumers and in the eyes of vocal fans ruined Chinese democracy's release. Oh my god. <laughs> he said that the reason why people don't like Chinese democracy is because they didn't get their Dr. Pepper. Nobody likes this album because nobody got their free Dr. Pepper out of it. What, what? the fuck? <laughs> that is probably... What the... Obama was running for presidency on the campaign promise that everybody would get their Dr. Pepper. <laughs> he couldn't get us the pep. Axel Rose, why? Damn you, Axel. I thought you couldn't stoop low. My expectations for you were already low, and shit, you managed to disappoint me again. <laughs> now, I, I will give him the benefit of the doubt. That was his lawyer, and after the lawyer said that, he said, I actually didn't think it was that big of a deal. I think his lawyer just sort of got a little too excited. <laughs> You're right. Let me back up. This situation is far too ridiculous for me to point fingers. As I said... November 23rd, 2008, the album finally comes out. 14 years later, they stream it first on MySpace. It was a huge success. That alone is a crazy statement. Just that that's already rocking me back to 2008. <laughs> the album, at the end of the day, cost a total of 14 million. So Axl Rose spent an extra million of his own money trying to finish this thing off. And now we finally get to the part where <laughs> we talk about the album and how we thought the album turned out. Spencer, you are not as much of a Guns N' Roses fan as I am. I'm not even really that big of a mm -hmm. fan, but you know like a couple of their songs, they're not their your favorite or anything. Precisely, yeah. How does this stack up to Sweet Child of Mine? It doesn't. And that's not even to say I love Sweet Child of Mine or Welcome to the Jungle. This album is, is schizophrenic is the best way to put it. It has 
so many different, I guess, ideas and, and moods jammed into it that it's inconsistent. Yeah, I would say that's an understatement. <laughs> no, it, it's all over the place, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. I right. mean, it could have had right. a lot of good ideas. Did you like it? Did you overall dislike it? Well, I would have liked it more if I got a free Dr. Pepper, but... <laughs> No, I'll, I'll admit, there's some catchy stuff in there. There's some catchy stuff. The lyrics aren't riot-worthy. <laughs> it's not as, like, punk in your face as some old Guns N' Roses shit. Oh, no. It's mulled down. It's watered down. It's very much... I, I would dare say it's watered down in the way where it's processed in the same way they process water bottles in a factory. It's canned. Heavily processed. Yeah, the album is canned, and it, it, it I wonder when you say that they thought, oh, this is too generic, we can't release this, and they did it again. Could it really have been more generic than this? I'm a little bit surprised by your statement. I'm finding you overall thinking that it's a mess, but, you know, it wasn't the worst thing you ever heard, and, you know, it's kind of fine. No, absolutely. I wouldn't say I hate it. Uh, I haven't listened to this album since it came out. I actually remember me and a friend actually listened to it quite a bit when it first came out. And I listening to it at this point, 11 years after it came out, it feels so long ago. Mm -hmm. My feelings are exactly the same. It's fucking trash. Yeah. It's not the worst thing I ever heard. I agree with you. There's a lot of interesting things Axl Rose tries to do. There was a point where I said, all right, this is like, I've gone from classic rock to some kind of funk track somewhere in the middle. I was like, all right, no, if I don't like it 30 seconds in, I'm skipping. And just... <laughs> Jack, this is not the album where I discovered my love for Axel. I'll put it that way. Really? I still hate this man's voice, even when it spans 10 years of recordings. His voice is an acquired taste. I really like his sure. vocal performance and appetite for destruction. I also just find him to be like a crow man. He's <laughs> just like he's... howling and <laughs> making these strange noises. If a Kenku was a musician, there you go. If a were-raven was a thing... Here it is. You mentioned that this goes all over the place in terms of genres. And this yeah. was something that Axl Rose did on purpose. He said there was a ton of genres. It's not just going to be industrial. You talk about how there is this weird funk track on here. I think it's Street of Dreams. I think it's Street of Dreams. There's this track where it fucking sounds like if you mix a porno with James Bond. And I'm like, yep. this is the worst thing I've ever heard in yep, my life. It's that one. It's that. Yep. Nope. Nope. Because that's, <laughs> that's basically what I said out loud when it came on. And he's, sing and he's singing like, he's like, oh, I'm so sexy. Everyone's going to want to be a super spy to this and get down and be all sexy. And I'm just sitting here thinking, this is disgusting. I feel like I need to take a shower. And the three songs before that, holy shit. I have never heard a more ugly sounding guitar in my life than on Shackler's Revenge. And those first three tracks are, you can tell, those are the first three where you thought industrial sounds were going to be in. Because yeah. they they sound like machines playing a guitar, <laughs> and oh my god. I, I know you said that you didn't absolutely hate it. This did get overall mixed to positive reviews. There are a lot of people who, at least music critics, who said, yeah, it's definitely not what, it's definitely not what you would want to hear back in the 90s where you thought it was going to come out. But you know what? It's not the worst thing ever. But, god. Oh... <laughs> uh... <laughs> Make it a better album next week. <laughs> Please. Uh, I mean, th this wasn't the most painful album I could have picked. To be fair, though, nothing's going to top the fact that everyone was going to get a free Dr. Pepper for this album. <laughs> that oh, man, that fact kidding. alone is my highlight of this podcast. <laughs> Before we move on, I want to see if you had the same thought. I think it was scraped. Were you getting Backstreet Boys? Yep. From uh -huh. that, where he where he was trying to sing like he was a boy band at the beginning. Yep. Yep. Oh my god, I was just scrolling through the uh, personnel attached to this. Oh my god, there's a man named Bumblefoot that worked on this. Bumblefoot. Bumblefoot. Oh, and Paul Tobias actually played on most of the tracks. Was he ever fired? I don't even fucking know. No, because I. Well, that's the thing is, I looked huge up, and it says he still works with Guns N' Roses. At this point, he's been in the band longer than Slash. To wrap things up, let's just go ahead and tie up the Guns N' Roses package in a neat bow. I don't think there's any neat bow that can encompass this jagged heap. <laughs> you, like a lot of music critics, kind of saw some positives. It had some things in it that were okay, but it didn't get a great critical reaction. I think it has a 64 on Metacritic. 
Mm-hmm. And Guns N' Roses fans absolutely hate it. It's just considered hot garbage. They wonder why they waited so much time to listen to what would end up just being bullshit. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> Despite this, Axl Rose would say he had so much material that was not on Chinese democracy that people could look forward to a part two. This would be a double album. This was never released, of course. Have they released anything yet? Like, in, no. the, in the years that followed that? Okay, that was their they last album. They are apparently working on one that was due for release in 2018, just like My Bloody Valentine that has not been released yet. Mm. So I think everyone with bated breath, just wait, 2032, it's coming. Apparently, in 2016, they were going to have a remix version of Chinese Democracy and release that second album that Axl Rose kept talking about in 2016. But I think there's a good reason why this never happened, because eventually Slash and McKagan, their original bassist, would rejoin. Slash has been on record in 2012 saying that he would never rejoin the band, and Axl Rose said they'd sooner die than work together again. And of course, they are back together as the band. Of course, because nothing they say means anything, and they both love money. (laughs) They're working on some songs right now, I think it is Axl Rose slash McKagan, Paul Tobias, whoever their current drummer is. They are all working together on an album. They promise it would not take 15 years this time. And believe me, I'm keeping track. It's been over 10 so far. <laughs> and you know what? If I, In five years, if they release one, I'm looking forward to the podcast we do of that. Oh, yes. We will have a live countdown. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. Thanks, I can't for, thanks wait. for giving me something to look forward to in the next five years. Oh, no problem. This has been Blunderphonics, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Spencer, before we head out, would you like to plug anything of yours? Sure. Listen to The Cock and Bull. It's a uh, weekly comedy and history podcast. It's kind of similar to this format. It's a, it's a little tighter. If if maybe, like, you know, you don't have, like, a full hour to devote, don't worry. Our episodes are usually, like, 20 to 30 minutes, so... I've got nothing. <laughs> You've got nothing. All right. Well, well, I, I actually did do the soundtrack on another one of Spencer's podcasts called mm. Cooperative Effort. This is different in that it is not actually him talking to some other schmuck about whatever. It is actually somewhat of a radio drama comedy of sorts. Yeah, it's scripted. It's all scripted and voice acted with sound effects and stuff like that. It's a production for your ears. Think of people trying to survive on an island if that island was a planet. Yep. There you go. There's some robots in there. There's some there's some sci-fi stuff. It's a treat. And if you listen to that and think, Oof, I don't know, season two is, uh, I don't know, coming in the next, like, eight years. <laughs> it, it'll, it'll be released as the liner notes to the next Guns N' Roses album. Season two is my Chinese <laughs> democracy. I, I will try to get some sort of musical album to shill out on this podcast eventually. I am working on something, but I'm not going to commit just yet because I am still working on my very own Chinese democracy. Thank you everyone for listening to this podcast. We hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. This has been Jack Derbe. This has been Spencer Faust. See y'all later. Farewell. Well.